Fallen. Fallen is Hit Factory. It has become a dwelling place of demons. Thou mighty podcast in one hour, has thy mighty judgment come, and the noise of a single episode shall sound in thee no more. Welcome back. Hit Factory Pod. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. <laughs> you didn't know I was going to do that, did you? No. <laughs> well, is that scripture? What is that? That is Revelation 18, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, you do well to remember it. We have a wonderful guest on our program. Uh, she is a journalist at KQED. That's NPR in San Francisco, another Bay Area uh, person with us today. Carly Severn is on the show. Carly, thank you for being here. Welcome to Hit Factory. Behold, I send you out as podcasters among the wolves. <laughs> I'm so yes. happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're thrilled we're to thrilled, have you. And truly. I should I should also point out, uh, because I forgot to, that you are a former co-host of The Cooler podcast on KQED. Incredibly important. Formative, RIP to even. The Cooler. Uh, we had a blast doing it. And uh, I still get lovely DMs about the cooler. And I believe the whole feed is still available online. So, you know, if you have a free weekend and you want to just have a listen, just just do. Do. Uh, and you brought a wonderful movie for us today, Carly. Boy, have I. We are going to be talking <laughs> 1997's religious legal thriller, The Devil's Advocate. It's hard to place. I don't know what to call it besides that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's accurate. Yeah. D- devilishly intoxicating <laughs> thriller, The Devil's Advocate. Uh, what a film. Uh, but but before we get into it, before I ask you about your experience with it, Carly, I realize we, we need to maybe sort out Carly versus Carly here. The phoneticism Very of it oh my gosh. is going to get difficult. I saw you two earlier this week on Twitter, kind of in a back and forth mentioning that you both love the, the 2018 film Den of Thieves. We certainly do, which is a 90s movie at its heart. It is yes. a 90s movie at its heart. I have literally said that verbatim, Carly. Oh, my God. I we didn't Den even talk about that. We are mind melding. <laughs> well, I, I started out on the classic Den of Thieves trajectory where I watched it and I was like, this is heat for morons. And then I watched it again and then I watched it again. And now I'm just like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm fully a Den of Thieves head. I love yes. that movie. Yes, it's amazing. We're all big fans of Big Nick. We're all drinking our Pepto. <laughs> I, someone, some one of our good friends posted the the opening kind of like text crawl today. That's like, <laughs> like one thousand times a year, forty eight times a, a month, twenty nine times a minute, seventy two seconds of every hour, a, a bank robbery happens. It's in Los- so menacing. <laughs> It's, and it it also, doesn't add up. It's no, fantastic. It, it really does. And also, that's, and the, that's just the opening from Cobra. I don't know if you've seen Lisa Lester's yes, still is. classic <laughs> Cobra, but that's just the same. Well, that's why it's wonderful. It doesn't add up, and it's the ultimate himbo flex to just say, fuck math, just vibes. We're just going with it. And it works. It like sets the stage perfectly. You know what you're in for. Uh, but when you all were talking about this, I think one of you was like, well, you can just refer to me as Big Nick on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other Carly said, well, you can just refer to me as Big Nick, which does yeah. not resolve the problem. It doesn't resolve the problem. hundred percent. I was going to suggest that one of us is like Nick, as in like Nick Cage, N-I-C. And then I was like, wait, that's still like audio. That's still going to represent a problem. So yeah, I have no ideas on this. We're screwed. 
I may just end up having to call you by your full name, or we'll use context clues. I'll, I'll point at which one of you I want to. <laughs> yeah, to it's describe. a hard name to shorten, Carly. I'm not sure you've ever encountered this, but um, yeah, I always kind of wanted a nickname growing up, and I, it's really hard to do. I mean, Americans have always tried to call me Car, and I'm always like, I don't do that. <laughs> that's that's a vehicle. It don't doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. One of my friends calls me Carl, and it works because like we have that kind of relationship, but that's not like a thing I want like tossed about, you know, freely. (laughs) When I was, I think about 13, I tried to rebrand as Carlotta because I'd seen it (gasps) written down and I was like, oh my goodness, so sophisticated. And if you ever try like a middle school rebrand, it does not work. You have to switch schools to do the rebrand, but I just tried one day, just, yeah, went down like a a lead balloon. It was not a good moment. It it cannot happen. I tried to do Aaron with a Y a little (laughs) bit when I was like 11 years old. Wait. We have to stop for a moment and talk about this. <laughs> I, we've we all did this. Is Middle this like a thing? This is a thing. It's a Do thing. kids just like hit puberty and like hate themselves and are like? 100%. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, I I honestly never ever thought that any other person at like the age of twelve was like, I'm going to change my name. Yeah, but you I'm can kind learn of comforted by that. <laughs> Yeah, you can learn a lot about people from their middle school attempted rebrand. It's very seriously. <laughs> I feel like I need to investigate this more, not on this show, but like I'm going to come back to that. There's something interesting there. There definitely is, and we will explore it in a future episode, to be sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but we for have, now, we have much to discuss. Much to discuss. Much. It, it's a long movie. It's a meaty movie. There's lots of things going on here. So to start it all off, I would like to know, Carly Severn. Tell us a little bit about your experience with The Devil's Advocate and why uh, you chose this as the film you would like to talk about on our show. Oh, man. This movie is my favorite Satan walks the earth and he's wearing a suit movie. Uh, that is a whole subgenre. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. It's really great. Um, it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about Angel Heart as well because yes. – you have Pacino being the devil in a suit in this movie, and obviously in Angel Heart, a decade before you have De Niro um, yes. as the amazingly named Louis Cipher. Uh, so yeah, Lou these two Cipher. <laughs> these two movies kind of um, exist like kind of little strands of DNA, just sort of intertwined for me in my mind, and I love them both. Uh, but you know, if it's like 10 p.m. and I've had two glasses of wine and I'm starting my third, what's the movie I'm gonna start? It's the devil's advocate. This, I I don't know what it was like over here, but this movie in the UK, uh, where I grew up, it was, it felt like it was on TV all the time. And it was kind of, it was sort of a bit like, uh, I think Event Horizon is in the same year. I think that's also 97. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time I saw those kind of movies on TV, I was just appalled and so compelled that this kind of stuff existed because, you know, we'll get into this, but The Devil's Advocate is a weird movie. It is a perverse movie in like the clothing of a legal thriller. And I just didn't know movies could be like that. Um, And I'd never experienced that kind of like melodramatic tone i'd never seen anything like pacino doing whatever the hell he's doing in this movie so anytime (laughs) it was on tv as a teenager i always try and you know sneak a little bit and i found it really scary as well i mean i'm sure we'll talk about this but this movie still has some imagery that like sends a shiver down my spine uh scary demonic faces i love them honestly put them in any movie and i just love it and yeah (laughs) it's i just again it's one of those movies that I've kind of come full circle on. I think in my younger years, I indulged in a lot of that, but like, it's so bad, it's good. And now I just think it's good. 
And I think it knows what it's doing. It knows it's funny. There's no like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or inadvertent funniness here. Um, this movie's just really well made. And it's also batshit insane. So uh, I'm so glad we're going to talk about it. So very glad and well put uh, across the board there. I think, well, and so I've, this is the first time I've seen this movie. So, wow. so I don't have that same trajectory. For a long time, I, I've seen all the images from this and uh, I, I remember seeing the trailer. Not all of them. Well, not all of it, but I, but I remember seeing trailers. I remember seeing previews of this thing. I remember at the time seeing the trailer because I was, I was relatively young. I was seven, eight years old. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, this is a movie about Al Pacino being the devil. And for whatever reason, there was a point in my adolescence where I talked myself out of that, where I'm like, that would be insane. Like, that's not what that movie's about. The movie's called The Devil's Advocate, but it's more just like a legal thriller where like Al Pacino, like like The Devil Wears Prada, right? Where it's like, yes. he's he's not really the devil. He's just really intense. Uh, lo and behold, like, you know, later on down the line, I'm like, oh no, I was right. Al Pacino... <laughs> is the devil sometimes life is that simple <laughs> yeah yeah an occam's <laughs> razor situation here um and yeah i i i mourn the experience i could have had with this movie on cable in those formative years becoming a movie fan because so many of the movies i love are those kind of cable classics that we just don't really make anymore and this is one that i know I would have absolutely loved as like a teenager and would probably still love today. I want to be clear though. This is not a cable classic. Like it's very much outside the realm of like the stuff that we would have on like TNT here in America. Yes. And it was on those channels all the time, but it's a film that is, I don't want to say it's like, putting seven on TNT, but like it kind of is right. Like there's a lot of dark shit in this movie and this oh, movie, nasty. Like, it's yeah. nasty. It shows you stuff. And it also from the jump is like, this is a pedophile touching himself in court. Like it goes <laughs> there immediately. And I think that like, when I think about like cable classics, it's more sort of like, you know, the, like men in black. And like, those are the kinds of movies that were on a lot. And we were spoiled here in the nineties because I think there were more sort of like mid budget, dark melodramatic thrillers. There was a proliferation of them. So they kind of could be on cable, but I just, I want to make that assertion because I think it's important to note that this film is like very dark. And the fact that it was on TV in the UK and in the, and in the United States, like, a lot like to wow. the point where like I knew this movie edited better than I knew it like <laughs> uh, like uncut until I saw it in college that's like kind of bananas like yeah. that that and I think that that just speaks to the not just the proliferation of of these type of movies in the 90s but also like the star power of like the leads and how how watchable this movie is that you could put it on TV and be like I'm watching Al Pacino I'm watching Keanu Reeves 35 minutes of the film is missing, but I'm still like totally enthralled. Yeah. Well, and, and let, let me rephrase in the parlance of uh, a lawyer here. I'm nothing if not a pedant. I'm not going to say any more about that. You that's don't need that's to. your assertion. That's your criticism of yourself. That's all I'm going to go with. Uh, it is not, you're right, a traditional cable classic. I guess what I mean is it is a mid-budget, adult-oriented thriller. It is for grown-ups. It's got... 
legal intrigue. It's got sex. It's got violence. It's got heady ideas about good versus evil. It is perhaps like Satan himself, a sort of sly kind of object in the clothing of something more palatable. And that thing, of course, being a John Grisham thriller. Yes. 100%. This is The Firm, another movie which I adore, by the way, which is almost three hours long. And should it be longer? I think yes. (laughs) Also an insane film, by the way. It's like totally batshit. Psychotic in a different way. It's it's actually the first film we covered on Hit Factory. uh, And Carly's pitch to me for that film was, it's one of the most psychotically white movies I've ever seen. I think that's fair. I I can't dispute that. (laughs) You really can't. By the way, Delroy Lindo is in this movie. It's like, uncredited. He's in it for like four minutes and he's four the minutes. best thing in it. <laughs> he sprinkles nails and I'm looking at him sprinkling nails like that. Like literally, like he's he's not doing a whole lot and he's like giving us the most. But he's doing the best accent in the film too. He for sure I mean, yeah, we'll get to that. But oh, we the will. <laughs> the goat stuff was not there. The nudity obviously is not there. Um and then I think there are some uh like parts of um, some of the sex that happens that like they take out not just nudity but like certain elements like I remember the sex scene being a lot shorter or maybe like not even in it I mean honestly um, thank god <laughs> that sex scene is like it's it's tough it's it's, it's really tough there's like there's too there's too much toe action which I find really distressing I literally yelped at the television and like was fumbling around for the remote to try and turn it down because I just yes. couldn't take the the onslaught it was a lot it yeah. wasn't even like toe. It was like half the foot that was oh, in his foot. I was like, Keanu, okay. Well, and it's also like I was watching kind of in horror, and this is, you know, maybe just like a, a neat freak thing that you've instilled in me, Carly, but I was like, you just tracked outside New York onto the wood. Outside and now New York. You're on the wood. And all right. Yeah. You know what? That's fine. It's fine. A young attorney has the chance of a lifetime. Bill Chadwick Waters. We want you to come to New York. All expenses, first class, travel and lodging, you and your wife. Oh my God. He will enter a place of wealth and ambition. We've got 40 partners vested at the moment. In addition to our corporate clients, we're currently representing about 25 foreign countries. He's got you scheduled for 15 minutes, so make the most of it. John Milton. Kevin Lomax. Well, what's that like? One day you're putting them away, next day you're setting them free. Takes a little getting used to. Pays better, though, doesn't it? Welcome to Babylon, Ma. Speak of the devil. <laughs> a world of power and seduction. Who's that with the senator? Controlled by one man. I swear he can hear us. Hell, he can smell us. He will make your dreams come true. Want to come upstairs and... Now? <laughs> he will grant your fondest wish. I'm just warming my hands on your talent. You know what I see? I see the future of this law firm. He knows your greatest fear. Milton is into everything. Arms brokering, chemical weapons, toxic waste, money laundering for the Eastern Bloc. I mean, it goes on and on. I don't like it here, Kevin. And he knows the price of your soul. Let's make a beef. Who are you? Oh, I have so many names. I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. 
God likes to watch. He's an absentee landlord. Keanu Reeves. He's always been there. I know that now. Al Pacino. As God sleeps late. We will win. It's my time now. <laughs> the Devil's Advocate. Let's let's start where you, Carly, on the other side of my screen right now, began with this, which is uh, Pacino, the devil. Uh, I like to believe, I like to imagine in my head that when De Niro and Pacino got together on the set of Heat, De Niro was like, Angel Heart's one of my favorite experiences I've ever had. You've got to play the devil sometime. And Pacino was like, okay. You know, like that. that's, Yeah. Pacino right. said there's a flip side to that coin and I will show everyone in 1997. Yeah, I I love that idea. I, I, you know, I know there's so much speculation about how their kind of careers intertwined and watching each other at work, but it is pretty on the nose to take. Uh, is it overstating that to call Angel Heart one of De Niro's iconic roles? I mean, it's semi-iconic, I guess, but um, the fact that Pacino essentially replays it beat by beat but just much much louder <laughs> 10 years later yes um i think it's, it's such a pacino move and the fact that this is two years after heat like i gotta be honest like heat's like one of my favorite films in the world but i think al pacino is objectively better in this movie than he is in heat a hundred percent agree with you he's and here's the thing is like everyone's like oh son of a woman like that's that's pacino at his pacino-iest I actually think Al Pacino playing the devil is Pacino at his pacino yes, And I would say that even over any given Sunday, which is very Pacino as very well. Very Pacino, yeah. Um, so not only do I think it's his most Pacinoist, but I, I think it's probably one of his best roles. Like, it's just remarkably delivered. And the things he's doing, like the details of how he licks his teeth and oh my he God. does There's that a, sort liz- of like... lizard flicks. I, honestly, oh if the, it was like a drinking game where you did a shot every time Al Pacino licked his lips in this movie, so you would be hammered by the end. He's like licking his lips. He's licking his teeth. He's doing a lot of like, I'm a serpent. Like he has like yellow. They left his teeth yellow. They d- I noticed role. that. Yeah. As a Brit, I noticed I glommed right onto that and I was like, yes, representation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, the the lip licking is there. His laugh in this movie, every time he's just like open mouth, just cackling. Yeah, and they let him be short as well. That's something I noticed. I mean, I don't think um, Pacino ever indulged so much in the you have to make me tall stuff as, say, Tom Cruise did. But the Mm -hmm. fact that there's a whole sight gag about him wearing these heels, which obviously, you know, the, the gag is that he has a cloven feet. But it also functions as like Pacino is quite small. And the way they film him and Keanu Reeves, and Keanu Reeves is like about, what, eight foot tall? He's he's a tall guy. And <laughs> yes. when they're doing those like walk with me down the street, you know, they're not trying to make Pacino tower over Keanu Reeves in the slightest. But I do think it tracks back to what Pacino says about I'm the surprise. They don't see me coming. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the minute he says that, you're like, oh, it's, it's okay to be short in this movie then. Yes, I love that. I love that they weave that into like, something that makes sense for the character of the devil that like he would play these unassuming parts on earth and like be someone that you wouldn't think twice about. We learn later that he at a certain point in his life as the devil uh, and in uh, Kevin Lomax, I hate 
that name. It makes sense, though, that the devil's son would be named Kevin. Kevin. Oh, yeah. Lomax. <laughs> Sorry if you have any special Kevins in your life, Carly Severn, or, or any of Not our listeners. Uh, but it's it's kind of a nothing name. It's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. But we learn at some point that he was a waiter in a restaurant, which also kind of fits into that, like, he's walking among us. He says at one point, like, I've been here on the ground, like, from day one. And mm. he's he's being serious. Like, he's not, you know, he's this man of wealth, yes, but he is also, like, he takes the subway. Like, he doesn't have, like, a driver. And he's still, you know, walking among us very literally. And, and I love the way that his shortness plays into that and that they bring it up several times where he's, like, surrounded by these towering women who are, you know, Parisian models or whatever and like Giselle 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 in the elevator (laughs) God I love this movie (laughs) I rewatched it today after watching it uh, last night as well and I caught on this watch the the subway thing like it's pretty obvious once you like know he's he's already always on the train he says it's the only way to travel but how frequently they are filming him descending into Mm. the subway tunnels and how it's just like you know, he's he's always walking downward. He's always coming down a staircase. He's always sort of, despite living, you know, in the kind of tower of this, you know, building in this in this apartment building that they all live in uh, together. He he's always on the descent. I loved that. I um I realized I hadn't clocked that before. And on this most recent rewatch, um, the fact that the first time you see him, he's watching Kevin uh, crossing the street, and then Pacino descends to go into the subway, and it really reminded me of one of my favorite scary scenes from The Exorcist, which is another one of my very favorite movies, which is that dream sequence that Father Karras has about his mother coming out of the subway, screaming wordlessly at her, trying to get her to to join him. And then she turns and goes back down into the subway. I honestly, just like even saying that, I'm like getting chills. It's probably like the scariest thing I can think of. And the minute I saw that scene in The Devil's Advocate, I was like, oh, everybody knows what they're doing here. And it's delightful. I love that. It works so well. And so you know, just some background details here for for listeners at home. Devil's Advocate, directed by Taylor Hackford, a name that you may not be familiar with, but you're certainly familiar with his work. Uh, we were talking before we got on mic uh, about the fact that he has a very a very varied career. Uh, he is the director of An Officer and Gentleman. He's an Academy Award nominee for his work on Ray the Jamie Foxx vehicle in 2004. And he's also done this one. Um, so he's done quite a bit. He's he's more of though kind of like a a 20th century sort of journeyman, right? Like he, mm. he I don't know how much he is sort of, you know, altruistically deciding on his own scripts and things, but he mm-hmm. seems to be a very good kind of company man who can uh, imbue these proceedings and these scripts that studios want worked uh, with, with a lot of kind of flair, a lot of kind of fervor. Um, and of course he's aided in that with this movie, uh, with cinematographer Andre Barkawiak, whose name comes up all the time in our conversations because he is one of the undersung greatest cinematographers of the decade. Uh, and of course, we've got a script written here by Jonathan Lemkin and Tony Gilroy, TG, whose name you might uh, remember, know, be familiar with, writer-director of Michael Clayton, one of the best films of the 2000s. And uh, you can see a little bit of that here. You can see the kind of fixations, the inkling of these kind of uh, serpentine 
fixers and uh, defense attorneys and and the guys who are kind of jaded and a little corrupt within that world of of the law. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a it's a crack team here for sure. I was fascinated to read that for a brief period in the early '90s, Joel Schumacher was attached to direct this film. I, I would take it, that. Though. I can yes. see it. The minute I read that, I was like, oh, got it. That makes so much sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It seems like the kind of thing he'd want to do. I don't know if this was before or after falling down, but it was right in that kind of time period where he was he was really cooking with gas. Uh, and Brad Pitt was initially attached to be the Kevin Lomax character. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I think no. both Carly's disagree. Tell me more. Say more about that. Oh, I just, I was thinking about fantasy casting actually, because I had this whole idea. I was going to ask you folks who you would fantasy recast this movie with. And then I was like, wait, that's a dumb question. Uh, everyone's kind of perfect in this. Um, I am a, a Keanu Reeves stan. I think he's great. Um, I think uh, no one uh, like since Harrison Ford has played with blankness so well as an action icon as Keanu, because yes. he's just like, I'm a blank slate project onto me and it works. Um, but he's like going toe to toe with Pacino in this. And I, is he good? I, I don't know what good means in this context, but he's so watchable and it's such, it's always interesting. And I love that. So the idea of recasting for someone as kind of milk toast as, as Brad Pitt, or I think w- there were some other ones, weren't there, about uh, Edward Norton. I could have seen that because then that would have been kind of a primal mm-hmm. fear callback. Yep, um, sure. Maybe a little bit too on the nose. Um, but yeah, no, everyone's perfect. Leave them alone. We don't need to, to recast this. I agree with that. Totally. Yeah, I mean, Keanu is doing really big, exciting, interesting work. It's it's an outlier in his career as well. Like you said, he is known for kind of that blankness. He's usually a much more subdued kind of performer. To paraphrase one of my favorite tweets of all time, why must a performance be good? Is it not enough to simply watch a beautiful face acting huge? Yes, and I will say that a lot of my favorite roles for Keanu, I am also a Keanu stan, are ones that play to his strengths, right? That understand that he's um, really good when he has action and stunt work to like buttress the character work that he needs to do in the film. So like John Wick, Johnny Utah, Neo, those are all of like, I think his best roles. But this role, this character Kevin Lomax is decidedly like not given the opportunity to do action, um, which he is very good at Mm. and is all just like emotion and like not just emotion, but like playing with a range of emotions like desire and fear and like outrage and crying and like all these all these different relationships that he has with his mom and these people that he's aspiring to be, but his own confidence like there's a lot of emotional depth to this character and he has to do a lot um, with people that are also doing a lot. Like Charlize Theron's character is doing a lot in this movie, which we'll get to. And of course, Al Pacino. And he's like, I said online that like, I think it's his best performance in the sense that like, I don't think it's his best movie or his best role, but I think it's his best performance in that he is pushing into territory that like he doesn't normally. And that is obviously very uncomfortable for him and doing a pretty good job. And as you said, very watchable, I was thinking about his performance in Constantine, which is a movie that's kind of similar to this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like supernatural dark underworld stuff. And 
Lord love him, but like he fucking sucks in that movie. Like <laughs> he does. And like also just beautiful to look at. I'm not going to complain about watching him for two hours, but I was like, whatever is happening and maybe it's just the proximity to Pacino and whatever else, the script, like some amalgam of variables allowed him to perform, I think beyond his means and do so really well. And I think that that is why this role is like very singular in his, in his career. I completely agree about Constantine. Like it's it's a, a quite a good movie, I think, but it's got that like grimness as a personality thing going on that I think has cursed us to, you know, many more years of Christopher Nolan movies. And mm-hmm. if we could yes. get out of that cycle, that would be wonderful. Um, yeah, I just talk about playing to his strengths in this one. I know everyone takes the piss out of the accent. And is the accent good? Again, no, but I don't know what good means in this context and like, I always want to fire it up and, and hear him go, oh, baby. Like, that's that's what I want. That's watchable. That's fun. The accent comes and goes. That's fine, too. I really, <laughs> It's a movie about lawyers and the devil. Like, let's not get too stuck on verisimilitude as far as, like, Gainesville accents go. A hundred percent. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. It is. It, it is. It's, it's a fleeting kind of accent. It is not a strong, it's not an Oscar caliber performance in terms of its consistency or its range, but it is exactly what the movie requires. And I I think that we have come around on appreciating that particular kind of role. I I was just talking about this with uh, Elizabeth Berkley and Showgirls recently, where it's like, is it like, an objective like good performance no but it is a fearless performance it's one that is being done in service of a particular kind of script and it's being done probably with the blessing of the director exactly the way that it's supposed to be um so yeah keanu in this is a lot of fun he is going going for broke he's doing something that he does not do very often in his career uh and again like you said he's He's going toe-to-toe with Pacino in scenes. Do you all remember that it was a thing in the 90s that he was like an idiot? Yes. Yes. Washed up. Idiotic. No good. Yeah. Yes. It was a thing. I mean, Matthew Perry brought. Remember he got all that heat because he like mentioned oh. that thing about. Uh, he uh, can fuck off. Yeah. That sucked. Yeah. I was yeah, about to say, what's lot. wrong with Matthew Perry? And then I realized, oh, it, he's he's written a whole memoir about what, what is wrong with him. He but has. To he's sing troubled. Keanu. I get it. But. No, but I, I think it's like even more inspired a casting that he's a lawyer in this movie. And he's not just a lawyer. He's a fucking good lawyer. Yeah. And this was the time when everyone was like, Keanu Reeves is a big, dumb idiot, which like, first of all, he's not. And he's one of the few people in this world that like, I think deserves to be famous. It's like him and Andre 3000. That's it. <laughs> um, and And I think it's like pretty remarkable that like, you see him in this movie and I love him and have loved him. And I was still like a lawyer. Oh, that's cute. And then I was like, oh no, like he, he nails it. It's interesting to just think of the metatextual sort of like the, the view that like pop culture had about him at the time and to cast him in this role, I think is a a rather Mm. bold thing to do. 
And it is funny because that's the kind of discourse that we often hear about female actors as well, where it's like Denise Richards as a as a nuclear physicist in this Bond movie. How ridiculous. She's wearing oh a tank God. top. It's just like, well, it's, it is a movie. <laughs> I don't know yes. what to tell you. You've seen a movie before. Um, but yeah, and like I feel like the script nods to this as well, where they, they give Keanu several lines where he's talking about the showmanship of being a lawyer and knowing the jury and, and treating them as an audience. You know, he literally gets to select his audience as well. So he, he can play it all out as an actor on the stage and like I buy it when I'm watching it and he looks great in a suit and yeah like he's as you say he's up against Pacino who is also talking about the value of showmanship and when to dial it down and when to dial it up and like it's it's all out there it all makes sense he can't get rid of those gator skin boots though (laughs) gotta rock those the entire time he looks great in them he does look good in them that's very true uh we've we've kind of tiptoed around talking about uh Charlize in this movie though and when this film started, I think, Carly, you you kind of mentioned, you're like, yeah, I kind of remember her not being all that great in this movie. And as the movie progressed, and it, it the movie takes her through the fucking ringer, by the way. This movie is very mean to Charlize's character. I thought she did a great job. She like comes off as kind of a naif at first, and then you realize that that's very purposeful to kind of make her sort of a, a, this sort of blank entity that tries to cling on to something. Uh, and man, she just gets brutalized in this movie. She's good in this movie. And also just like on a super shallow note, anyone that's considering that buccal fat removal in 2023, I want to just send them the photo of Charlie's in this movie and be like, this yes. is what you're losing. This yes. cherubic visage. Like, no, <laughs> don't do it. But she's so good. And as you say, she, everyone gets it everyone knows what movie they are in they are you know she's histronic when she needs to be histronic she's funny when she needs to be funny she's super endearing she's annoying for some of it as well so you like she starts to grate on you much in the same way that she's starting to grate on her husband so you end up in this very conflicted thing where you're like i can kind of see why he's working late and looking longingly at his half sister (laughs) yes she I I mean, I was a buffoon to make that remark because I had forgotten how good she is in this movie. And I think the last time I watched this, I was like in college or something. So maybe I just like wasn't attuned to what she was doing. It, but... it wasn't meant to indict you, by the way, either. I wasn't trying to throw oh, you under no. the bus with that. But... I'm indicting myself because I did say that. I was like, yeah, she's like not great in this movie. And then we were like 30 minutes in and she's already starting to lose her mind. And I was like, holy shit. No, it's she's so incredible. fast. <laughs> so, but, but remarkably she escalates in such a way that like you're not blindsided by it. Like it feels very realized. She's, you know, initially quite bothered that he's working late. Then there's like, Oh, you were like, have you been doing stuff with like these women that he's inviting you with? And, and it starts to, it starts to unfold from there, but she doesn't overplay it. She, she moves through that mania in a way that feels real and feels like lived in so that by the time we get to her climax when she's literally slicing her fucking throat open with a shard of a mirror um like it it it's earned like you know how she got there and that i think like alone regardless of being surrounded by other incredible actors that in and of itself i think just makes the performance remarkable but then when you put it in the context of like keanu doing a really great job and and Pacino doing a really great job and frankly Tamara 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 Tooney also doing mm, incredible work in this movie so good. um I'm just like yeah she Char- Charlize just nails it she nails this role 
I was I was certain that they were going to end with her like horrific experiences in the church. It's like okay, she's been raped by the devil. She's got cuts all over Fucking her body. Fucking stigmata like yes. all over her. And then she's in the psych ward and I'm like okay, good, she's safe. <laughs> I was wrong and that was the point at which for me, again first watch, I was like, oh, this is that kind of movie. This movie is going to mm. actually not just like uh, kind of approach the ledge and and tiptoe there. It's going to go all the way off the fucking cliff. I love that little fake out with she's safe in the psych ward. They do it a lot with um, police stations in horror movies like yes. um, Terminator and Jeepers Creepers. Like yes. you're in yep. the police station now, you're safe, which obviously like we, you know, that's a whole other thing to unpack, like who is safe in a police station. <laughs> but I, I like that the they kind of play with that institutional like setting and it's like, oh no, things are going to get much worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this movie like doesn't seem afraid to get its hands dirty. I mean, from from the outset, when we were watching this opening here with Keanu in the courtroom in Florida, you've got uh, child molester Frank Sabatka sitting next to him. And there's this girl like tearfully recounting being molested by this man. And and he like starts to try to poke and prod at her credibility because she passed notes <laughs> during class. Uh, it, I was just watching this scene and, and I was, you know, leaning over to Carly and I was like, there's a lot of reasons that this wouldn't work right now kind of culturally. But mm-hmm. like, I, I just can't imagine a 2023 movie even like daring to like step into and wade into something this kind of murky right off the bat in its film. Yeah, I think it's, I feel like a lot of movies in this decade in the 90s have that like idea that it's not even bad taste, just like taste is not a concept we are familiar with on the plane Mm -hmm. that this movie is operating on. Like, as you say, the the child abuse element and the trial, everything that happens to Charlie's just icky 90s treatments of sex and it does remind me of primal fear it does remind me of copycat where you're watching this stuff and you're like and then you start saying things like well they couldn't do that today (laughs) like but it is true in this instance like they could not and they would not and you know obviously we can debate about how uh, right or wrong that is but yeah i mean obviously the flip side of that is there's some stuff in this movie uh that would not fly now and should not i think like the whole um, Moyer's subplot, the Delroy Lindo, like God bless Delroy Lindo for doing the best with that, but it is dodgy stuff. Um, yes. Yeah, this movie's like racial politics are definitely um, like iffy, I will say euphemistically, but um, yeah, it's just, it, it just kind of, it doesn't seem to be at all concerned with what is appropriate. And I think that's a, a, a thread I see, that's like a vein I see running through a lot of these kind of 90s movies and honestly legal thrillers, which... Often that'll be like about a rape trial, a child abuse trial. Um, And you'll have some pretty awful things in a script being put into actors' mouths. Again, that I don't think you would see or hear today. Uh, We get a lot of this with Craig T. Nelson's character as well. The Trump monkey figure. (laughs) Yep. Yes. I mean, even filming in Trump's real life penthouse. Yeah, it's just, it's so ugly it's just like gilded like top to bottom with like disgusting gold and emblazoned with uh, turquoise and weird shit in it but important that a 90s audience would recognize that that is trump tower and that is the penthouse like i i I appreciate that the movie is like making those you know associations and like 
Craig T. Nelson's character is a real estate magnet. Like it's, you know, it's all there. I think what I find interesting, even if there are some problematic elements about a movie like this going to all of the places that it goes is the types of moral conversations that it has that reflect a very particular kind of mindset mm-hmm. and and mainstream sort of societal um, perspective around certain things. Going back briefly to the opening scene of the trial um, for Frank Sabatka, the child molester, um, and the young girl talking about how he molested her, um, and the way that Kevin Lomax indicts her is by not just talking about the fact that she passed notes and called this man names, but that she had a party and like played a weird sex game and like made kids Mm -hmm. lie about it. And the like response by the jury and the people at the trial is like scandal. And I'm just like, it's such a strange, it's such a strange thing but it also maps perfectly back to this like 90s obsession with like rule following and mm. like the moralizing of like protocol mm-hmm. and that yeah. like that in itself being a virtue particularly around children in school like we had dare programs and we had all this stuff around like what you could and couldn't do and like whose car not to get into and all these things and like it was a really big deal that kids behaved at school. Um, And I think like, it's not that that's gone now, but that was much more of like a a popular conversation at time. Mm. And I think at the time, and that's why I think that that flip of like Keanu, like laying into her in that way, it's, it's disturbing, but you also like putting yourself in the shoes of a nineties audience member would be like, well, she misbehaved, so mm. who knows what she's capable yeah. of? Right, she's, she's acting like a strumpet, right? Like a this strumpet. perfect victim discourse that we are somehow mm-hmm. still in and has, has still not changed. In. And I think it's so interesting how the uh, Keanu Reeves character plays with like the idea of uh, perfect victim versus imperfect um, defendant uh, yes. in the Creighton Nelson trial. Uh, where he blindsides him with the revelation of the, you know, having an affair. I I don't like him very much. You're not going to like him, he says to the jury. But that doesn't mean he's a murderer. So he's perfectly willing to, like, flip that around and use imperfection to his advantage. And, yeah, it, it all stems from that that first scene and it's no wonder that we double back at the end of the movie spoiler alert to to revisit that and yeah it's kind of like the skeleton key to the whole movie like this movie is smart i know it it's playing with dumbness in like smart ways and that's one of my favorite things yeah you know as we're talking about that opening scene i'm beginning to realize too that one of the interesting things that uh the script does is plays with that sort of 90s moral puritanism and indicts it by showing how easy it is to manipulate by these nefarious parties. Yes. Right. So it's not just the devil and, you know, the the devil's minions uh, doing bad things, but it's actually showing that there is this sort of corruption at the heart of all of these values and manipulating them and, and utilizing that as a strength in order to, you know, uh, acquit Lots of bad people. 
So fill in the resume for me. Tell me, uh, your family, your father, what does he do? I never got to know my father. He passed away before I was born. My mother raised me, just the two of us. She never remarried? She wasn't married the first time. Well, that can't be easy in a town like Gainesville, can it? I don't think it's easy anywhere. Your mother, what's she like? She's a preacher's daughter. She's tough. She's worked at the same poultry plant for as long as I can remember. She's got a church she really likes, so she's usually either there or they go out. They do a lot of volunteer work. Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. So they say. I didn't rub off the book, the church? No, I'm on parole. Early release for time served. A lot of potential clients down there. Are we negotiating? Always. <laughs> Can I ask you a question then? Why do you need a criminal department? Our clients break the law like anyone else. I'm just tired of sending their business across the street. You offering me a job? I'm thinking about it. I know you got talent. I, I knew that before you got here. It's just the other thing I wonder about. What thing is that? Pressure. Changes everything, pressure. Some people, you squeeze them, they focus. Others fold. Can you summon your talent at will? Can you deliver on a deadline? Can you sleep at night? When do we talk about money? Money? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the easy part. I didn't actually know this was based on a book. Um, I think the author's Andrew, Andrew Niederman. And mm -hmm. the fact that that book came out in 1990 and it got like, it took seven years to make. And by the time it comes out in 97, I think even after, you know, seven years uh, of glossy 90s legal thrillers, this movie kind of came out of left field and everyone was like, whoa, but they still went to see it. This movie made so much money, by the way. I was yes. so surprised about yes. that. But just the idea of the schlocky, the devil walks among us. And imagine if he was the puppeteer of all of the bad things in the world. Like, it's such a retro plot. I think it seemed retro when Angel Heart was doing it. Um, but for this to happen in 97, like, you know, we're two years away from the Matrix. Um it's wild, and I think that's what kind of sets this movie apart even more, that it's such an anomaly. Like, every time you're, like, rubbing your eyes, like, kind of Acme cartoon style, like, wait, wait, what am I watching? <laughs> but it yes. works. Yeah, and, you know, maybe, so, admission here, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, but I grew up in the church. Uh, I, I grew up a pretty devout Christian. Uh, you started the episode quoting Revelations handedly, so. Well, I, it's, it's from the movie. Yeah, okay. so. Uh, I didn't but, see you reading from a piece of paper. Uh, well, <laughs> hey, there was a moment in time where I uh, I was much more devout. I was a much more godly man than I am now. Uh, but there was this kind of concretizing of like right wing evangelicism in the '90s, right? Like it, it sort of took root after the kind of satanic panic stuff of the 80s and the early 90s. You've got all these mega churches. You've, you've got kind of like this 
almost mainstreaming and secularizing of just the fact that like America is kind of this like Christian nation. Mm. And for whatever reason, and I, and I have my ideas on this, maybe I'll talk about them a little bit later, but for whatever reason, we kind of turned inward and started sort of preoccupying ourselves. And, and I mean, we, in terms of like the religious sort of sect of the United States, we preoccupied ourselves with these ideas of the apocalypse of, you know, the things that happen in revelations and started to like, kind of look at it almost as sort of, uh, I, I mean, it, it is an inevitability, but you know, per the scripture, but, but that, that we were getting close, that there was something about this era and the end of history that sort of spelled like, maybe we've reached the apex and maybe the only thing left from here is the inevitable fall before, you know, be before the ascent to heaven. And, uh, so that was kind of playing out like conversationally pop culture a, a little bit, but you're right. Like this is sort of an outlier in that legal thriller kind of obsession, uh, while also sort of feeding, I think into a lot of those anxieties now turned into almost like certainties of the way that the world works in this mm. like newly kind of charged religious body in in the country and of course in 97 what is around the corner but the turn of the millennium as well yes. like i was i was thinking about how i didn't realize it at the time i'm trying to remember how old i was then um certainly very like uh primed for like satanic spooky dookie plots mm -hmm. um you know i think like the x-files was definitely flirting with like a whole bunch of satanism plots around there yeah like yep. end of days i think is is a similar plot where like the world's ending someone's got to fix it um event horizon that's very demonic uh, mm -hmm. all of these movies around this time looking up to the millennium um you know as any kid that checked all of the uh the spooky books out of the library knows like there's you know a thousand and one ideas about what were what was going to happen uh, at the turn of the millennium i was obsessed with the idea that the world was going to end and i was really <laughs> disturbed by the fact that i didn't have a plan because <laughs> like i knew my family <laughs> wanted to go on vacation around that time and i was like but i won't have a safe place to hide <laughs> It was a real fear. <laughs> Same happened in 2012, by the way, and it, that didn't pan out either. <laughs> it, but like, it was a very mainstream fear. There was the the sort of like literal technical element, right, of like us coming to terms with the fact that we had digitized a society over the last decade, and that flipping to zero would fuck everything up, and yeah. like that that was real even though it didn't end up panning out but like there was the that sort of like technological like the practical element of the millennium coming and it's spelling doom in all of these ways and then there was all of this sort of like uh social and cultural like ephemera that surrounded it about not, you know whether that was spirituality like we were talking about this when we were um talking about the movie spawn mm -hmm. There's a lot of that in Spawn, too. There's this idea that, like, something isn't right and, like, you know, there's, like, doorways to uh, to hell and they're, like, where homeless people live. It's a little bit too, like, it's not great. Um, Sounds very Prince of Darkness-ish. It is a little Prince of Darkness-ish. Yep. But I think that, um, I think that the the paranoia around the end of the 90s I mean, this is something we talk about on the show a lot because we're in this decade and it's a it's a decade that's fraught with a lot of political and uh, like economic stuff. Um, and the media reflects like a pretty big arc um, between, you know, the beginning of the decade at the end of history to the millennium. 
And we talked about this on our last episode with um, the ever charming Bilga Abiri uh, when we were discussing the game made in this very same year or released in this very same year about just how paranoid the movies get by mm-hmm. the end of this decade. And this movie is explicit about it. Like mm-hmm. it's there in all of the text of the film. And then at the end, when Al Pacino gives his speech, he just fucking says it. Like he gives literal voice to all of the fears and anxieties that are floating around in the ether that might not be sort of articulated and pulled into relief. He just says it all. And I was like taking notes furiously during that speech because it is incredibly relevant to the time. And yet like every single thing he says feels even more germane, like 20 years, 25 years later um, applied to like our current moment. And we've all dismissed that speech because it's delivered in like classic Pacino bombast and it's easier to giggle at it than to be like, oh, <laughs> a lot of this is quite resonant and and scary. And may I say, I love the idea that this was like an acceptable secular way to deal with like millenarian concerns, um, which to fixate on the Y2K bug. And then the minute we got into the new millennium to be like, oh, well, that was all overblown, but actually it wasn't overblown. It would have happened were it not for human effort to make sure that Y2K bug did not pan out. So we got to just like throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, that was a weird time, wasn't it? We were worried about nothing. And it wasn't nothing. It was it was absolutely something. But I've never thought about the religious connotations of the Y2K bug before. So thank you very much. I'll be thinking about that now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all kind of tied together for me. And, and, and just in my observation, there seems to be a component of neoliberalism, specifically 20th century neoliberalism. It's kind of a death cult. There's sort of this inevitability and this uh, kind of like glossing over and this sort of casual acceptance of the horrors of empire and the horrors of neoliberalism and the horrors of the sort of capitalist churn. And we just come to kind of anticipate and expect it and sweep it away. And for a long time in the century, especially from like mid-century on after the Great War, we had a villain. We had a fear. We had this conceit of a nuclear apocalypse and the turmoil that it would cause and the kind of end times. And as that started to subside, we started to look more inward. We started to look more at our own populace. And so there is a reactionary component of this that I think very deliberately is tying sort of like the sinfulness, the demonic quality of urban centers, because of course, right, uh, with this like kind of marshalling in of that second coming, right? So we, 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 I say, I keep saying we, because I was part of it, but there was just this sort of like, there was no longer this principal threat in nuclear apocalypse. So what is the threat before 2001? It's it's something spiritual. It's something that exists on a plane that's more kind of metaphysical and, and intangible. It's funny you talk about urban centers because I was thinking about, you know, in The Devil's Advocate, how, um, you know, this New York upper crust greed and degeneracy and gilded penthouses and, and you know, killing your family because you lust after your stepdaughter. Um, you know, these are rich people problems and it's it's kind of casting this as, you know, the demonic setting. Like, what if this was hell? Um, and that is kind of a, a I feel like hellish tropes, like hellish visuals were often 
previously reserved for, um, you know, low income places, low income mm-hmm. folks, you know. And then I realized I was like, wait, but there's literally a scene in The Devil's Advocate where Keanu Reeves, you know, arrives to go and speak to um, Philippe Moyes, the Delroy Linda character. And just like this almost cartoonish, broken down street scene full mm-hmm. of folks um, who, again, are meant to kind of evoke this sort of, you know, this is a different kind of underworld. So I feel like the movie is kind of having its cake and, and eating it here with, you know, where it's saying hell is actually located. It's above, but it's also below. I found myself thinking like, this is another one of those movies and Spawn does this, that Seven, I think, also does this, that explains poverty and like, all of the the bad things that happen in life that we know are like structurally caused explains it through something spiritual. It It is that very 90s thing of like, there is no society, there is no structure, there is no material element to these people's pain. It's sin. It's sin. And what I like about this movie, but also I think is confounding and potentially complicated as you're pointing out is that this movie is saying like everything is sin right like everything about our modern era and Al Pacino's character sort of like affirms this in the end where he says like isn't it clear like the entire 20th century is mine like don't you get that but the movie is is expressing that perspective in other ways by by painting everyone as a sinner in one way or another. That's like the most 90s neoliberal like sentiment you could have about like living in the modern world is that like everything is a sin and it's all like not anything we have control over. You just have to like follow rules and be good and like spend time with your wife. And like, Just do, do the best job you can and and, and battle yep. through it. But you're so right about Seven as well and, you know, the idea of, like, the urban center. This is just a bad place. Don't ask questions. It's just inherently bad. And, right. like, putting that into the mouth of Morgan Freeman as well. Right. You yes. know, he's like, this city is terrible. You shouldn't have come here, Gwyneth Paltrow. You will die. And But I am trying <laughs> to retire to my country home where things seem a little bit less sinful. You know, it's, it's all out there in that movie. What I love, too, about the the moral landscape of this film is not just that it reflects something very specific about, you know, a point in time in America and in sort of like Western capital capitalist nations, but that also like all, all of these sins are equally punishable and equally problematic. And, and if we've read Inferno, we know that's not true, right? Like there are levels um, and certain there's a hierarchy to the sins, but it's sort of saying that like greed, lust, uh, you know, um, vanity, like self-love, uh, all of these things are all problems. Like they're they're all equally bad and they're all like why society is failing. And what is interesting about that is that the person who actually makes the most sense in this movie because he is quite literally anti-establishment if we're going to talk about him in those terms is the fucking devil like (laughs) they do make him very sympathetic to a certain regard not even sympathetic because he is sympathetic but the words coming out of his mouth Mm. are like ones where i'm like it's like it's a little bit marxist i think the moralizing of this film 
quite literally in the end, like, is there so that the devil is the thing telling us that like actually makes the most sense so that we will dismiss it. And I'm not saying this movie is like state propaganda or like, you know, nefarious, but I think it's reflective of, of, uh, you know, the role of media, popular media in America that like these ideas of like it being a problem that everyone is like, (laughs) building egos as big as cathedrals and like it's it's you know all of this like surplus at the top that like if those ideas were to be uttered they would need to come from someone like the devil because we would need to not let that plant any seeds in like you know an acquiescing populace Mm. that's like a, a maybe me like reading too much into it but I think we see this you know in other examples too where it's like even in like submarine movies like the Russians are always the one that are like talking about whatever it is they're talking about. And they're supposed to be the bad guys. Like, I don't know. I just watching this as my politics have changed from the last time I saw it, which was in college when I was like politically amorphous, like Charlize Theron's character even says at one point, like we have all this money and it's supposed to be fun, but it's not. She's talking about like the soul crushing, like existence of, living under late capitalism. Yeah, and she's literally strapped to a gurney uh, yeah. being yeah. admitted to a psych ward when she's <laughs> saying, we knew these people were guilty, but we kept taking the money anyway. Yes. Like, and her credibility shot, she's gone. Like, she's getting checked in. Um, yeah, I think that's, this movie, uh, you know, has its cake and eats it too in, in lots of ways um, mm. that I can't help but admire in a very perverse fashion. Yeah, I mean, it is really fun to watch like that. And uh, you're right, Carly, like there is stuff here that is very much kind of this incidental upholding of a value set that was very prominent in the 90s. Even before that, you know, there's the the line. Greed is good. (laughs) Greed is good. Yes. Yeah. And Pacino as the devil at the end in that like and it's like it's like a 17 or 18 minute long just like almost pure monologue it flies by it does it's like one of the most riveting parts of the movie uh but when he's he's saying in his beautiful Pacino voice I'm a fan of man he says (laughs) right you know he he makes a very good point about morality and about puritanism and he says you know like look but don't touch and you know, touch, but don't taste and, and says he, he gives you, God gives you this free will. God gives you these sensory experiences, this ability to feel pleasure. And then he sets the rules in opposition to it to just fuck with you. And we're hearing that from the devil. It makes sense. Again, I'm, I'm watching it. I'm like, yeah, that is a really fascinating, interesting kind of critique of this sort of religious puritanism of this he calls him an absentee landlord an absentee landlord god what a good line that whole thing is so the good whole thing i'm a humanist maybe the last humanist what do you want from me i want you to be yourself you know i'll tell you boy guilt it's like a bag of fucking bricks all you gotta do set it down Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. 
He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> And while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him, in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who, in their right mind, Kevin, could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine? All of it, Kevin! All of it. Mine. I'm peeking, Kevin. It's my time now. It's, um, I'm kicking myself over here because I, you, you know when you have like a realization in real time, uh, just going back to what you guys mentioned about Seven, I hadn't ever considered Seven to be the true older brother of this movie, which it is. Mm, so it's like yeah. only mm-hmm. two years prior um, and the fact that it doesn't have the literal devil in it doesn't mean that there aren't just huge similarities. You know, the, the John Doe character is demonic, devilish. And also his whole thing is that I don't make these people do these things. They do them to themselves. <laughs> I yes. just, you know, I, I'm working with what I've got. I might tweak a scenario a little bit, but I mainly just wind them up and watch them go. And I'd never quite made that connection before. They're like, oh, this is kind of the same movie with, with the same villain. Exactly. Yeah, we've. I mean, we've talked about Seven on the show before. It's it's been a while now, so I I don't remember much of it. But one of the things we kind of came away with on that that last rewatch was just how much of its story is driven by that kind of Miltonian idea of like you know the fall of man and and this mm. very kind of reactionary, very sort of religiously informed idea of sin of evil in the world. Um, and specifically, like like Morgan Freeman's character says, of just like the 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 certainty of this evil that it's that it is uh, inconquerable and just always going to be there. Yeah. yeah, Seven is a really good companion piece to this film. Yeah, the rules are set in opposition to us in that too. It's I'd never put that connection before. There's a couple of scenes in which uh, whether or not Pacino's bullshitting is is called into question. One of those being when Jeffrey Jones gets like beaten to death by some homeless people in the park. Uh, and then when the uh, gentleman from the Justice Department uh, gets run over by a car. And and we were having this conversation, Carly, earlier where you're like, is he really not a puppet master though? Because he like killed a guy with a car and like sent a bunch of demons to beat him up. But I was, I was reading a little bit more into this and apparently Hackford and Gilroy uh, had a conversation about designing these scenes to 
have an element in them where you could have reasonable doubt. Yeah. One of those oh, things being that Jeffrey Jones resists the muggers, right? Like he tries to fight back. He like he refuses to give them what they're asking for. So it could be the case that they just beat him because he's being resistant and hostile. And earlier in the scene with the guy from the Justice Department, they cross many streets not looking. There are like one or two moments and it's a beautiful, beautiful build to that climax in that scene alongside the intercutting of Pacino, like boiling the holy water in the church. That like escalation into him getting hit by a car and the the back and forth between that exchange between the Justice Department guy and Kevin Lomax and Al Pacino in a church, just like grinning at like cherubs and angels painted on you know the ceiling and then like laughing maniacally is just like such incredible movie making like seeing that in a theater must have been a fucking hoot i'm jealous this, that i haven't the, the thing about this movie is like the it, it's like schlock material with the highest of production values and like that's just like that's not the same as like this looks expensive it just looks good it just works like you can just tell that everything has been put together with such care even though the material in like lesser hands may not have received the same attention and that scene with Pacino boiling the the water in the fount which is incredible the way he does that little kind of look up like hey are you watching this to god that's what makes me think that a lot of his performance is tipping to De Niro a decade ago in Angel Heart, because there is that moment where De Niro and Mickey Rourke chat in a church, and I think Mickey Rourke curses or something. And De Niro, it's so funny. He does this little kind of like look up where he's like, please, like, you know, the master is watching. Like, <laughs> you got to keep it down. And the, the fact that they both have these little similar like gazing to the heavens, I, I kind of see the kind of symmetry between, between the performances there. Oh, I love that. I think you're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you're saying about just how well handled and well made it is it is schlock executed brilliantly perfectly we talked about a lot of the players already but in terms of some of the distinct scenes and some of the some of the features of the movie uh one of the things that struck me right away and and one of the first moments in the film where i was like oh this is what we're doing uh is when keanu goes to see pacino on the rooftop office of the building and they walk out to the infinity pool on the roof of the building that just just waterfalls over the edge down like 70 stories onto onto the new york street and the water i've i've discovered was digitized was was animated uh but some of it it was actually look it it doesn't it looks really good good. uh but it i I guess it is uh post uh production work and, and vfx uh, they used a real rooftop for some of it, and you can tell because there's a little bit of wind blowing, but there are specific moments where they are clearly on a set where they have like a rooftop set designed and the exterior shot of the skyline is some sort of like wallpaper or projection that is just like up. And there's this horrifying, uncanny stillness to everything. There's no wind blowing. Everything is set. When you look in the background, there's like a moment where you can kind of catch a flagpole and it's not moving. And it gives this wonderful impression of time being suspended whenever he's with Milton. 
And in a, a lesser movie, you would think like, oh, this is like a bug of this movie, right? Like this is this is something that they did because of budget constraints or time constraints or had to reshoot. But in this film, it is a brilliant feature. And you're like, that is a wonderful kind of thematic play with that production design. The moment I love in this movie, um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when the ship starts sinking in Titanic and you're like, oh, let's go. We we are off. We are off to the races. <laughs> it's the moment where Keanu leaves the psychiatric institution just after Charlie's has has taken her own life and mm-hmm. the the female lawyer is outside just smoking leaning against the wall and no one is on the avenue and she yes. says, you gotta go he's waiting for you and that's the moment where i'm like oh now we've started oh this is so good because i know what's coming i know that monologue is about to kick in but just as like a way of pacing this movie i mean like you said it's it, it's what like six seven hours long i'm never bored during this movie. <laughs> no it introduces two separate villains in in moyes and the the craig t nelson character and then you never see them again mm-hmm. and i don't care you know it's just it's so well put together and it really transcends its material or maybe it doesn't maybe that's snobby of me to say that you know the material needs transcending it's just yeah the kind of care with which this is put together i feel like you just don't see a lot of that anymore and i miss it i really miss it they even go super ham on the scene where she's like painting the apartment there's all I those love that there's all like a there's all movie. those yes and there's all those cool wipes that are like in in tandem and, and parallel with the the roller brush uh, and it's so intoxicating. Like it has this kind of, we talked a little bit about the rhythms and just like kind of how long the movie plays out. And it allows itself to have these sort of beats that just linger longer than they should. You get the impression of Charlize's character like almost being like drugged, like intoxicated. Like she's mm. so fixated in this moment and so kind of manipulated and controlled by Tamara Tooney's character and her dismissal of the color choices and the way she kind of strings her along that at the end of it, you feel this exhaustion and you see how it's kind of made her manic. Uh, And it's like, this doesn't need to be here, but it's so, it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It adds to that. Add on to that running time. Just give me more. And the fact that (laughs) you don't find her tedious, you're not like, Oh, for God's sake. Oh, sorry. You had to move to New York and have all this money and you have to redecorate an apartment with all this money. You don't (laughs) find her tedious because they give her that great line where she says, I've had like what I've had a job since I was what, 14 years old, you know, two jobs in fact. So, you know, that she is not accustomed to a life of privilege. You know that she's not just, you know, um, someone to sneer at. And just the fact that they drop that in, I think is so smart because it keeps you on her side, even when um, she's being kind of annoying. Yeah, she's, they, when you said the part about like the audience sort of feeling the things that Kevin Lomax feels toward Charlie's character, like I realized that I did have moments where I was like, God, like, shut up. Like, just read a book. <laughs> read a book. Like, you've got an apart. Chill out, lady. Um, but, but it's it's brilliant that the movie is able to to do that kind of emotional manipulation. I also think that the sort of moral landscape of what this movie has to say about families is really interesting. Mm-hmm. We, you know, end the film with the devil himself saying he wants a family. <laughs> he wants a. Uh, Kevin Lomax and Connie Nielsen. 
Connie Nelson's character. Who's she has a Italian type her name's like mm, Cristabella, I think. Cristabella. Cristabella. Thank you. Yeah. Um, which before we go on, this is one of two movies in like three or four years, along with Gladiator, where there is a subplot where Connie Nielsen is yes. so hot that her brother wants to fuck oh her. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I honestly, I can't believe I didn't clock that either. She's just irresistible. What can I say? She's irresistible. She is. She kind of has the same hair in, um, they give her lots of like tendrils in Gladiator too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's always regal. You know, she is, she she's is. our incestuous queen. There's, there's the, you know, family at the end that the devil wants. He wants them to procreate and, and give him a child who will sort of like usher them into the new millennium uh, of, uh, an event he is also uh, has some anxiety around. It seems the devil himself, but but also earlier in the movie, there's all this conversation about like, oh, like we better give your mom a baby so she'll get off my back, and like, oh, you're never around, so I'm not. Tr- I'm, this isn't going to be a nursery. I thought like we'd make it a law library, and like, you know, the the people that like they are surrounded by once they move to New York do not have families. They're all adults that just sort of like, you know, fuck and like cheat on each other and drink and have lavish parties and like wear clothes that cost $3,000 and then throw them out. Like that's what they do. And Charlize's desire for a child is this through line through the entire film. And I think that it's, it's an interesting way to read the the devil's desire for a child to be to be born and also this sort of parallel path of the the sort of like godly the godly version of that mm. um that she really wants to fulfill her duty as a female and uh and when she can no longer have kids like that's when she basically says like my life is no longer worth living shortly thereafter like she's uh she's raped and she she kills herself um and all this to say like the thing that like i find myself responding to in our current moment is like i personally don't want to have kids i never will um it, that's a decision i'm making i might also be barren who knows um but <laughs> sorry that's a terrible joke the, the doctor will tell you what what's the the uh what she diagnosed with it's like it's such a movie no, thing. No, it's literally non-specific, like ovarian failure. Ovarian yeah. failure. Non-specific, non-specific yeah. ovarian failure. It sounds like the kind of thing that they like put in the script in brackets that was supposed to like be changed for insert something more name clinical. of real real thing here, and then they just right. forgot. They forgot to do it. It's That's like that like... microchip technology in Face Off where they were like, "Oh yeah, all this stuff was placeholders," yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it just made its way into the final script. Yeah, and it still works. Like whatever, nanobots. Um, it's fine. Don't nanobots. <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting that like the film is is delivering a very like '90s storyline of like mm. procreate and and have a family. But it's complicating it a little bit because, like, the desire to have kids is also one that the devil himself has. And it's showing us there's a right and a wrong way to do that. And we know that that's, like, very much, like, a a trope of the 90s and and that that no longer applies to, like, the world that we live in. There are all types of families and, you know, millennials are deciding not to have children for a myriad of reasons. And, um... And I think it's just like a another like signal that this movie is 
just doing more than like your average your average thriller, your average film. Yeah. And I appreciate and this, that. This corruption of family throughout as well. Like Creighton Nelson has a daughter. She seems nice, a stepdaughter. Oh, they are, you know, they're involved in an incestuous relationship. This is terrible. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, yes. I don't think I've ever quite clocked in the movie whether she's meant to be underage, but if she is, that obviously echoes the the abuse trial that opens it. Um you know, Keanu has a chance for a family, but it has to be with his half sister. What's he going to do about that? And the mm-hmm. fact that I think the only child, the only real child we see on screen is this demonic vision where like it's a baby sitting on the hardwood floor playing with Charlie's Theron's ovaries. Like that the visions in this movie, like when it flips into a horror gear, it goes all out and the the stuff it invokes visually on screen, like it's it's pretty indelible to me. I know it can be silly at times, but um, every time an image like that is conjured, every time like someone's smile becomes this like demonic toothy grin, I just I recoil every time because it's so sparing as well. It's not horror mode throughout, mm-hmm. but when it's engaged, you start to get very on edge looking for it. You know, on this rewatch, I noticed that. Uh, when Keanu comes back from a night at the office at one point, um, their apartment looks hellish down the bottom of the corridor. There's this red light. And I was like, oh, that's really good. Like Mm -hmm. it's super short. It's super subtle, but it put me on edge instantly. I was like, where's that fucking baby? That thing is coming back and I'm terrified already. There's also that part where uh, Milton is coming out to Cristobella and uh, Kevin on the roof and he's smoking a cigarette and he he takes a puff of his cigarette and he walks through it and they do this like incredible um incredible effect where smoke is coming from his collar and like you blink and you think like it's just his cigarette smoke but it's very clearly he is himself He's smoking, smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what i'm talking about there's just details like that throughout the entire film that are just they just enrich the thing and also this movie knows when to keep it realistic and when to play with non-realism as well. Like how close is Charlie's Theron's window to Central Park? Like, yes. How is she able oh to watch God. Jeffrey Jones getting beaten to death yeah. seemingly right in front of her? It's I- like an eyes of Laura Mars thing where she's just like seeing it with someone else, like the killer's eyes and like freaking out in the room. It's, it's a little, so little clever. <laughs> it's just like those, like we said, I mean, it's, it's these things that don't happen much in movies anymore a lot of like subtext a lot of interesting ripples get ironed out in favor of a much more kind of straightforward read a lot of themes are no longer latent but like hand delivered to you to make sure you don't miss them uh and there's like visual metaphors too that we don't get a lot in these kinds of movies as rare as they are in modern times did you all clock how frequently mirrors show up throughout the movie yes uh, from the from the get go, right? Like Keanu is splashing water in his face, and it's the first time we see one of those lovely uh, demonic smiles that you yes. mentioned, Carly. Oh my goodness, that little toothy, wolfy grin he does! I find it yes. genuinely a little bit more frightening than the CGI demon faces. Yes, it honest. is. It is frightening because it's it's a kind of look that we're not used to seeing specifically on Keanu, and oh. he's also contorting his face in a way that's very just sort of uncanny and deliberate. Uh, and we see them throughout. We see kind of reflections. Of course, Keanu's uh, ultimate sin is vanity in the movie, mm-hmm. hence the mirrors and the reflections. 
uh, but also the sort of the reflection and the vantage point with which the characters are seeing the world. Keanu has this sort of wool over his eyes, whereas Charlize's character sees things as they are. She's able to kind of clock the demon. She's able to notice these faces and the sort of terror in here uh one of my favorite shots in the entire movie is again one of those like very intoxicating scenes where milton is explaining to her how she should change her hair yes and he's right over her shoulder and uh and we're looking we're, we're actually shooting the reflection mm-hmm. of the two of them and they're almost like it's like a persona kind of shot you know these two bodies sort of molding together and he's using his hands as hers to kind of explain what he wants to see oh it's so good and let's not forget that Charlize at the end of the movie kills herself with a shard of a broken mm-hmm. mirror. Hence the illusion being shattered finally for Keanu's character. But uh, yeah, that kind of stuff is just those fun little details in this that, again, is it schlock? Kind of. Is it elevated beyond that to the point where like it's it's a movie that has things on its mind and is like, executed by people who know what the hell they're doing 100 percent. yeah and this idea that you know on the twitter discourse of like this movie's so inadvertently funny like no dipshit it's meant to be funny it knows it's funny these funny lines are written into the script to be funny like i was so struck on this most recent rewatch about how hilarious some of these lines are and like the people who deliver them go in with with huge commitment. My favorite, I do have to say, is where Keanu is seeing Milton's apartment for the first time and he notices the lack of a bed. And yes. he's like, yes. where does he sleep? And another dude is like, well, who says he sleeps? And Keanu says, well, where does he fuck? And Pacino just launches out of nowhere and goes everywhere. And it's, <laughs> I just, I could watch that for days. Every like everything out of his mouth is pretty funny. Like he's, I think the funniest character in the whole film, and he's also the devil. Um, and it's it's brilliant. He he threads that needle perfectly. I one of the things I wanted to ask you, Carly, is like where the movie sort of coalesces into this idea of like why they're lawyers. And uh, Keanu asks like directly. He's like why this like why are you doing this and uh the devil says because lawyers are we're in everything we're in everything and there is a there's a a surplus of law students there are more law students Mm. than there are lawyers in america and um i think like that's reflective of like sort of the grisham launching us into like obsessions with legal procedures but I also wanted to just ask you like what you made of that statement for like the sin sort of nexus to be sat uh in in lawyering I think that line conjures for me this image of just an army of of baby demons uh, but in this case, yes. they are legal students that, you yes. know, progress, quote unquote, in this sense is inevitable. It's coming just like the millennium's coming, whether you want it or not. And that this is the face mm-hmm. that this particular march has taken on. Like, that's what I like about that, um, that image that, that Pacino is invoking there, just the inevitability of it all. And 
and that it's going to look and sound good as well because again yes. so much of the script plays with the idea of showmanship and who cares if it's true if it looks good and sounds right um the idea that there's this hollowness to the whole enterprise as well it's just yeah it's a, it's a really compelling image both kind of verbally and and visually I, I think it's really fun oh absolutely you nailed that i just imagine like a, a law professor at the university doing like the cliche like look to your left look to your right statistically one of you will be asked to usher in the apocalypse <laughs> and breed the antichrist i don't know that's after they've um, ostentatiously thrown the rule book in the into the trash can yeah <laughs> Maverick style. Yeah, uh, Maverick style. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I do love that. That's a great movie. I mean, I spent it, my birthday watching Maverick this year, guys. That was my that was my choice. Oh, watching Maverick you, for the first time. You have two like vehement Maverick fans oh, here. Yeah. Like, I loved that fucking movie. It was a great watch. It's it's the reason you make movies, right? It's it's pure spectacle. It's visceral. It's entertaining. Tom is Tom, Tom, Tom. you know, talking of demonic grins. <laughs> oh yeah and slightly shifted from alignment right he's mm-hmm. got those teeth that central are teeth yeah yeah yep. oh it's it's a little eerie uh one of the things I, I guess one of the last things i want to talk about with this film is just sort of what we've kind of already dipped our toes into a little bit and, and that's the earnestness of it for like what it is like it it is having fun it's being funny but it's also an absurd premise played relatively straight Mm. there is none of that kind of like post irony sort of like kitschy remarks and things that undercut the severity of the characters Uh, there's that like i don't know if you've seen it cry there's this wonderful interview with james cameron uh that was like going around on twitter recently where he was also bemoaning this sort of marvelized disneyfied like post irony speech where Mm. he says the, the quipification exactly and he was like in my movies, if a character is in danger, I'm going to just let them actually be in danger. Yes. Because if if a character's life is on the line, like it's not going to be funny for that character. And I don't want it to necessarily be too funny for you. Like I want you to feel the same thing and the same emotion as this character. Oh, and Big Jim, as ever, nails it. I mean, yeah. he's talking about Ellen Ripley going back down for Newt right in that elevator shaft oh, where she's man. strapping on the gun and she looks petrified. That's one of my favorite scenes in any movie. Yes, it is exactly that. The characters are genuinely frightened and terrified. Keanu really lets it rip when he's like screaming over Charlize's like bloody body like in the in the psych ward. Oh, man. Uh but one thing I, I had to call out, and maybe one of the few times in the movie where it didn't really work for me, is the very last like 15 seconds of the film, where we break the fourth wall and Pacino shows up like, you know, in the, the sort of mask of the reporter and says directly to the camera, like, vanity is my favorite sin. It's fun. It's got a cute kind of like, it's it's a good bow tying but it's the one moment in the movie where i was like i wish this had been executed just slightly differently how do you envision it being executed differently i mean even if he just said it to himself as he turned into pacino as he like Mm. walked out of the courtroom or something yeah you know Mm -hmm. uh 
but the way that it's done for it, it's just that one moment where it kind of like tips its hand a little bit too much for me and descends into a place where before that for two and a half hours, I was like, I love that this movie is not doing any of this with sort of like it's it's tongue firmly in its cheek. It's just playing out the way it should and having a good time doing it. I will accept. I think like I've lost perspective on this, honestly. Like, I've seen this movie <laughs> so many times that I can't recall what my first reaction was to seeing that. It's a dumb ending. It's really dumb uh, because as you say, it's winking for the first time and I can completely see how someone's like, oh no, don't do that. We were doing so well. You, you don't need to go full on breaking the, the fourth wall. Um, the one thing I can't get away from now, and it's because I heard it said on a, another podcast years ago, this was the How Did This Get Made podcast, where they were saying the funniest thing about that line, vanity, definitely my favorite sin, segueing into the Rolling Stones, paint it black, was that clearly at some point someone meant to get the rights to Sympathy for the Devil. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but either <laughs> forgot or couldn't. And instead they use paint it black, um, which is objectively very funny. And now that's what I'm focused on every time when that yeah. dang, 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 lick starts. Um, and I giggle. Honestly, when I, I finished watching this movie, I was giggling at the mm -hmm. screen in delight. And I was like, you know what? Good show. It's a spectacle. <laughs> I'm into it. And it. But it is a dumb ending. You're exactly right. It, it, and again, this is this is a minor quibble. These are high quality problems to high have problems. for a movie that is about <laughs> a law firm run by Satan himself. Uh, like it, it, it could have gone south way before this and it doesn't. And I think it's so magical for that. I, I am so happy we watched the movie. And I want to return to it like almost immediately. Oh, I I literally, as we're talking about the film, I'm like, I want to watch that tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> almost three hours will we'll zip by. But I, I don't want to like cast aside your criticism of the end because it is dumb. And also when you compare it to like the smartest scene, I think, which is when Pacino is offering Keanu a way out where he's like, oh, your wife's sick. You're obviously off this case, right? Why are you saying you're... You're going to keep working on it. And then when he, you know, there's a callback to that lake to when he says, I gave you a chance and you ignored it. Um, the trouble is when you compare how smart that scene is to how smart the reporter morphing CGI aided <laughs> into Al Pacino's face and quipping at the end in a way that Big Jim would not approve of. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of night and day. You're right. Well, the, the audience has responded to it anyway. So it made a it made a shit ton of money. And you're right. Like there is a part of me when I uh, turn off the analytical part of my brain and just go full lizard mode with this movie. I also giggle at the end. And I'm like, this is remarkable. That was wonderful. I can't believe this exists. It's just so much fun. It's pure pleasure. I mean, there's all the kind of all, all, tedium, connective tissue. It's all stripped away. It's somehow still incredibly long, which I don't understand how. It's like, you know, in the House of Leaves where they, they measure the house and they're like, but it can't fit into the space. Yes. Like, that's how I feel about watching this movie. Yes. Where I look at the clock and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like almost three hours have passed and it doesn't feel like it at all. So it's uh, mm -hmm. it's a trick. It's, it's one big demonic trick, this movie. And congratulations <laughs> to the people who pulled it off. Truly. I... I... Uh, I really appreciate you bringing it to us and like suggesting it because I had forgotten like how much I like this movie, but spending time with it, um, you know, at this point in my life when 
things in my life have happened that are sad and happy and, and I'm of a certain age, like I just like appreciated this film even more than I ever have. Um, and appreciated it for all of the reasons we're talking about, but really what you said just now is what it is, which is that like, it's just like such a thrill to watch. And like, that's what movies are for. They're meant to just like entertain us. Mm. Um, whether that entertainment comes in the form of fear or, you know, uh, desire or, or some amalgam of everything. Like I, I just think that when a movie does that so capably as this one does and does it so fiercely as this one does, like, it's like, Oh yeah. Like I fucking love movies. This is why they're, <laughs> this is why they're here. Yeah. We have to demand better from our entertainment because we can have schlock done with care with incredible production values and direction, or we can have schlock treated like schlock and we don't yes. deserve that. No, no, we do not. We're, we don't. We're worth it. Is what We are. We're worth it. That's right. More <laughs> stuff like this in the future here. And with that, I think we have come to the end of our thoughts on The Devil's Advocate. Uh, Carly Severn, thank you so much for being our guest today. You have been wonderful. We so appreciate you bringing us this wonderful movie and uh, and coming with all of your beautiful ideas about it. This was a delight. Thank you so much, folks. Carly, where can people find you around the internet? Oh, good call. Um, you can find me. Uh, I'm at Teacup in the Bay on Twitter. Um, that was a name I chose uh, when I believe I was about 22 years old. And now I'm not. And I'm stuck with it. And I don't know what to do with it. I know it's infantile. But what can I do? It is there. Teacup in the Bay. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, but I just lurk there and just uh, post stupid stories. So Twitter's mainly the place. And also kqbd.org, uh, where I publish uh, a lot of stuff. Fantastic. And from our end of things, uh, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. We also have a Patreon where you can subscribe for just $5 a month for bonus content. We do two of those a month. That's patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. We're going to give a shout out to our overlords. There are three of them. Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray. Thank you all so much for your support. And we will catch you all the next time. I was living in devil town. Didn't know it was Devil Town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the Devil Town. All my friends were vampires. I didn't know they were vampires. Turns out I was a vampire myself. In the devil town